All right, thank you, counsel. The next case is Honey Fund versus the governor of the state of Florida. John Olendorf is here for the appellants, state of Florida, Douglas Hallward Drymeyer and Shalani Agarwal are here for the appellees. And when you're ready, Mr. Olendorf, you may begin your argument. John Ohlendorf for the appellants. Florida's Individual Freedom Act bars businesses from mandating their employees to attend workplace trainings, endorsing any of eight concepts that the state has determined to be discriminatory and offensive, including the, the odious proposition that members of one race are morally superior to another. Now, businesses, including plaintiffs, remain as, as free as they ever were to espouse those concepts and to advocate for them both inside and outside the workplace. The uh, act does not restrict that speech at all. Instead, the act bars only the conduct of threatening an employee with termination for declining to attend a training inculcating one of these ideas. Here's, I have a hypothetical for you. Let's say that the law says social media companies must delete all followers from accounts that express pro-communist viewpoints. Does that govern speech or conduct? Your Honor, uh, in uh, this court's uh, net choice decision, uh, I think, Your Honor, uh, wouldn't be surprised to learn that I don't uh, entirely agree with the analysis in that opinion, but, but taking it as, as binding here. Um, uh, the way that I read net choice is that a decision to host speech or to delete speech is itself speech on the part of the, of the speech host, on the part so of how, the how is that different than this? Why, if this company wants to host speech, then why is that conduct? Uh, because the conduct here is not hosting the speech. The, uh, any company remains free to host uh, speech, uh, host workplace trainings, um, uh, espousing any concepts, at least uh, uh, you know, setting aside any independent Title VII problems. You just can't actually train. You just can't actually let them train people at their workplace trainings. No, Your Honor. What they can't do is they can't require employees to attend. That's the that's the. How, how do you train an employee if they don't have to go? I've had a lot of required seminars that I would have really liked to skip in my life. Uh, of course, uh, Regardless of the content, you just have other things to do, right? I've been fortunate that, that uh, we don't have very many of those. Um, but uh, I, I understand, Your Honor, but uh, the, the fact remains that the company in that position is able to host the speech. Uh, the uh, the equivalent in the social media context, Judge Grant, would be uh, some sort of requirement uh, that people look at the speech that's been hosted, right? And a social media company can't force its uh, its host. Do you have to look at the speech too? I mean, how how would anyone know beforehand whether the speech at issue would fall within the parameters set by the law? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure I get the... You know, I, don't, I don't see how you know what it applies to unless you know the content or even the viewpoint of the speech. We, we acknowledge that, Judge Grant. There's, there's no question that one has to look at the content of the speech that goes on at the trainings in order to determine whether the, uh, the restriction on conduct has been triggered. Uh, but that, Your Honor, is, is common throughout the law as we've, uh, we've cited um, 
the Hill uh, statement from Hill versus Colorado uh, in, in our papers. That, that was the case in uh, in this court's recent Norwegian decision, right? The, the court had to look at the content of the communicational exchange between a business and uh, and their customer, and 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 whether that communication exchange uh, uh, revealed that the customer was uh, vaccinated against the coronavirus, in order to determine whether the subsequent conduct, the denial of service to the customer, was prescribed by the act. So it's you, had, you had to look at the content in the ordinances in the auto case too, right? Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. I, I, I think, uh, Your Honor, your, your, your opinion in the auto uh, case is, is clearly uh, not on point here because there, uh, no one no one disputed that what was being restricted was speech. Uh, oh, sure they did. They were. They argued all day long that it was con that it was conduct. That this is our conduct of offering medical treatment, not our speech. And the holding was essentially, if it if it's just speech, then what can it be besides speech? So, that's right. so, so I, I read Otto as being akin to. Uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, the, the Cohen versus California case, right, where you have a regulation of conduct, and it's just speech comprises the conduct, the speech of uttering, the conduct of uttering words, the conduct of, of wearing words on your jacket. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, when a, a conduct regulation is applied to speech itself, that is a restriction on speech, and there's a cognizable First Amendment claim there. That was the case in Otto. Uh, so if, if you can't tell whether the law applies to this purported conduct unless you know what the speech is. How is that not restricting speech? Because when the resulting burden, once you've undertaken that analysis into the content of speech and determined what the regulation is triggered, the resulting burden is on the conduct, not on the speech. But what the, the conduct is not being able to fire Maybe. someone for a, failing to attend Correct. a workplace seminar that no one ever wants to attend anyway. Uh, correct. The conduct is not being able to, to terminate an employee for declining to attend the seminar. And that is not, that is not itself speech. That, that is conduct. That is separately, to use the district court's phraseology, that is separately identifiable from speech. Now, you only know whether that, that restriction on separately identifiable, con identifiable conduct applies after a threshold examination at the content of speech. But again, that is the same thing with, uh, you know, with tax subsidies that only apply to certain types of speech, with, uh, 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 with disclosure requirements. This court in the uh, Tracy versus Florida Atlantic University uh, case uh, dealt with a disclosure requirement where uh, faculty had to disclose uh, a speech that, that comprised a professional practice. Well, you how, how, about, how about this one? Companies must charge each employee $10,000 to attend any gathering that paints America in a bad light. Is that speech or conduct? So give it to me one more time, Judge Grant. The company company companies must charge each employee ten thousand dollars to attend any gathering that paints America in a bad light. Is that speech or conduct? Uh, I think that's closer, Your Honor. Uh, but I, I think that no, that seems to me, on reflection, to be clearly conduct. I don't. But what's different? What's different? I, that is precisely, Your Honor. I, no, I mean I'm asking what's what's different. No, what what makes that? No, you're, you're saying that's conduct. I'm saying just as here, that is a restriction on, on conduct. So you think Florida could pass that law, and that would be fine? <coughs> that it would have to charge, no, well, uh, sorry, uh, let me think this through. So it has to charge an employee $10,000 right. to attend uh, 
then, then no, that is distinct from this, uh, this case, Your Honor, uh, because uh, the, the, um, the, the business is not as free to, uh, to espouse the idea. Well, why, why explain to me why it's different? Uh, because uh, it's, it's still just, just telling me <coughs> it's still the business acting in a way to, you know, penalize or support various expression that the employee sees or hears. So, Your Honor, I think what makes it different is there, uh, to the extent that is a regulation on, on conduct, uh, the regulation itself clearly imposes a burden on the speech. It imposes a burden on the speech. But why doesn't this re regulation impose a burden on the speech? This regulation makes sure that no one, the, employee has, the employer has no right to exercise its ordinary, its entirely ordinary control over employees. And it can make employees attend seminars all day long on topics that are not covered by the law. But it removes that expressive ability of the company for certain topics. Why isn't that a restriction on speech? Well, so setting aside the question whether the conduct is expressive, I think it's distinct because the Supreme Court said as far back as the Rowan versus United States Postal Service case and has repeated many times that the First Amendment just does not include the right to, to press even good ideas on unwilling listeners. Well, uh, right, but it also, you can't, you can't restrict someone based on their viewpoint. So the, in this context, Context, companies can press an infinite number of topics on unwilling listeners who are their employees. You can make them, you can make them listen to literally anything except this list of topics. Just as Judge Grant uh, in uh, in Tracy, um, a, a professor could opine and engage in speech on an infinite variety of topics. Uh, but if it uh, if it uh, if it constituted professional practice, then they had to disclose it. And this court said that's not a burden on speech. Uh, that's that is a conduct requirement. Why isn't this just if? Let's just assume that this is burdening conduct. Um, why isn't this like Sorrell, where the Supreme Court said, look, there are these things where they're kind of focused on content, I mean, they're focused on conduct, but at the end of the day, they have an effect on expression? For, for two reasons, Judge Brasher. First, I think Sorrell is best understood, and this is how I think um, this court uh, decision in the Norwegian case. Um, as involving uh, a, a restriction on uh, the flow of information, which is itself a, a First Amendment expression. Um, so I think there, uh, there you have a, a direct restriction on speech rather than a restriction on conduct, rather than simply a restriction on conduct um, that has an effect on speech. But uh, there is language in, uh, in Sorrell saying that uh, that the, even if uh, the restrictions on information were not understood as itself restricting speech, it would be uh, burdensome on speech based on its conduct, akin to uh, you know, <laughs> a, a law restricting a newspaper's ability to get ink. Right. Uh, and so I think that comes back to uh, my argument with, uh, with Judge Grant. There, I think you clearly have uh, a, a, a law that to the extent it's regulating conduct and not speech, it's still doing so in a way that burdens speech based 
based on its conduct, uh, based on its content. So you would just distinguish rule by saying that the burden on speech is not as not as significant, not not as important in this case. Is not not in terms of is distinct, not in terms of its significance or importance, but because of the line of, of cases from Rowan saying that the First Amendment just doesn't include the right to conscript people into the audience of your speech. Uh, always, you know, if you can force people to listen to your speech, uh, it, that speech is always going to be, in a sense, more effective. Uh, but the entire line of captive audience cases rejects the notion that that is a cognizable burden on speech. What if, what if you said that you can, in, in a public auditorium, you can use a microphone to talk about how great the UJ Bulldogs are, but if you start talking about the Gators, microphone's off. So I think that would be a time, place, and manner uh, restriction on speech, um, and it would be one under O'Brien that appears not justifiable without looking at the content uh, content of the speech. But either, I mean, it's it's a captive audience, right? You have a you have a room full of people, and so you you can't tell those you can't tell those people about Florida, but you sure can tell them about Georgia. Why isn't that the same as this? hypothetical was the audience a captive they're, they're, just, they're in there for, for whatever reason the people are in there they you know they can't leave the standard is is it practically feasible to to avoid the speech I don't think the fact that you have an audience your honors are not my captive audience because we're all in the same room this morning has the um, captive audience doctrine ever um, applied in the employment context your Honor, I'm, I'm not aware of, of a decision implying it in the, in the employment context. I can't think of any reason why it would not apply uh, if uh, it's a situation where, as I think, <coughs> it meets the standard set forth in Erzhenazhnik. Seems like it would be a pretty drastic uh, expansion to do so in this instance. Again, I don't see why, Your Honor. I mean, the, the, the is this a situation where it's practically infeasible to avoid the speech? I think you know, telling an employee you've got to listen to the speech or you lose your job certainly qualifies. What? Well, can be a hypothetical well, with it. Sorry about uh, uh, Judge Wilson. The Middle District did apply the captive audience um, rationale. In context. In Robinson versus the Jacksonville shipyards case in the employment context. What if an employer, during its diversity training? said, the person conducting the training said, there is racism in America, but there will not be any racism in this business, in this employment, period. Would that constitute a violation of the statute? Just in terms of that hypothetical as you've presented it, I don't see how. What if, if, if this law stands, then couldn't another state somewhere else make a similar law that said if you cannot force your employees to attend trainings where it is taught that all people of all races have equal abilities, you can only force people to attend trainings where you say that some races are worse than others or that you know women shouldn't be here or things like that. Your Honor, I think as far as the First Amendment goes, that's correct. That's correct. A state could do that. I think that there's an obvious Title VII problem there, um, and there may be other types of legal uh, objections as well. But, as but from a First Amendment perspective, 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 I think the logic is precisely the same. 
Thank you, Mr. Ollendorf. We'll hear from Mr. Paul Ward Drahmeyer. Thank you, Your Honor. Paul Drahmeyer on behalf of Plaintiffs Appellees, and I'm splitting my time with my colleague, Ms. Agarwal, and our intent was that I would address the First Amendment issues and she would address the vagueness, overbreadth, and uh, preliminary injunction factors. Um, at the core of the First Amendment, is a prohibition on the state restricting speech because the state disagrees with that message. And that is exactly what we have here. The state has, has imposed a penalty of $10,000 if, but only if, the employer in a mandatory employee tr training environment advocates concepts with which the state disagrees. Those are the state's words, advocates concepts with which the state disagrees. And we know that it is the speech that is being limited here, strict, restricted, and punished, because we know, Judge Grant, as your questions indicated, that the employer can mandate attendance at a training, can put DEI training on the agenda, can start to address these topics generally, and it is only at the point at which the employer crosses some very difficult to understand line that my colleague will, will discuss uh, into advocacy of these concepts that the statute has been violated. Here, here's a hypothetical for you. What if the law said no employer may alter their employees' terms and conditions of employment by forcing them to attend a meeting endorsing discriminatory behavior by employees? Could a state make that law? I, I, I don't think so, Your Honor, because it's, again, just the speech endorsing something that is the violation. It's the speech that's the violation, not the, the consequence on the terms or conditions of employment. And that's what distinguishes this statute from, for example, the hostile work environment context that the state has cited under Title VII, because hostile work environment is actionable only when it is so severe or pervasive that it amounts to a change in the terms or conditions of employment. So we have to know the, con the context, we have to know the consequence of it. It's not the words themselves that are the violation. Here, the, court, the state has said the words themselves. The audience at the employer could be welcoming this information. They could agree with the information, or even if they didn't, they could say, you know, that was actually very thoughtful. I at least need to give that some thought. Could the, could the state say that, could the state establish a rule that these types of speech were per se established a, an abusive um, working environment? No, no, Your Honor, they, the, the state cannot simply declare that speech with which it disagrees, concepts with which it disagrees, are by the state's, you know, sort of dictate um, abusive. What if, the state, what if the state of Florida was very thoughtful, as states are, right? They're very thoughtful. And they looked at all of the 11 Circuit's case law, and they said, okay, these are the things that the 11 Circuit has said 
constitute a hostile work environment, right? You know, we've got this case here that identifies this as a problem, this case here that identifies this as a problem, and then it passes this statute that says you're not allowed to do these specific things. You're not allowed to say racial epithets. You're not allowed to show, you're not allowed to take the position that women are not as smart as men, right? Like, you're not allowed to do these things. Could the state do that? Well, Your Honor, I'm not aware of the cases that hold that just saying those yeah they don't hold that they're just these are facts right these are facts right and, and so that's what our point is that here it is the as the words leave the mouth it's the it's the little bubble in the comic strip the words themselves are what have violated the statute if they amount to advocacy we don't need to know what impact it had on the audience if any so there's none of that context. That's why we, how we know that this is not conduct at the, that the statute is going after, but it is the speech alone. And this distinguishes it from Norwegian Cruise Line, which my, my colleague uh, cited to. Because in Norwegian Cruise Line, the court was very clear that what the statute was getting at, its focus, was the exclusion of passengers from the ship, excluding the main customer from the establishment. It was that act. That was the goal. The speech restriction was incidental because that just was about how you learned or not whether somebody was or was not uh, vaccinated. But that was entirely incidental. The act that was being prohibited was the act of prohibiting the, the, the person from attending. They, they would say that the, the act here, right, as you said, was 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 per, was mandating the attendance of someone at this harmful but of, event. But of course, that, that act of mandating attendance is not actionable. And, and, the, and we, because we can mandate the attendance and we can talk about these issues, as long as we mouth the, the party line of the state of Florida that, that wokeness is a bad thing, we're okay. It's if we disagree with the party line of the state of Florida and say, you know, actually, these things are real. Racism is systemic here. It gives rise to implicit bias that you may not even be aware of. And it's necessary. You can't say, I'm immune from it because it is so pervasive in this society. If you say those things, which the, the state of Florida has deemed too woke, then you are subject to $10,000 civil penalty. So let's, let's assume that we agree it's speech and also assume that we agree that... Um, that this law advances a compelling interest of combating illegal discrimination. Just, just assume, I'm not asking you to concede. I'm just asking you to assume. Um, what would be a more narrowly tailored way of reaching that goal, of accomplishing that goal? Your Honor, um, I would note a number of things. First is that um, we, we would say that it's always more burdensome than necessary because it is vague because it's very difficult to know at what line you've crossed from objectivity and advocacy, because whether, whether you violated some of these provisions, and I have to say the state's position is reply brief on some of them are inconsistent. I don't even know. So vagueness is itself an indication of that the statute prohibits more or chills more speech than it needs to. But in terms of the, uh, the, the effect of discriminating, again, you can go in and you condemn these woke you know, pr pr uh, ideas, you can say, you know what, colorblindness is the only way to treat people. Well, that can have the same impact 
on somebody who is experiencing systemic racism as going in and saying, you know, colorblindness is wrong because of systemic racism. It's just different people who are being impacted. And here the state has chosen only to prescribe one of those messages. It's the viewpoint-based discrimination that's wrong. The state cites Hill v. Colorado. It cites uh, for, uh, other, statute, uh, other cases involving time, place, or manner. Time, place, or manner is an exception to First Amendment protection only if it is content neutral. This is the antithesis of content neutral legislation because it is only if one advocates the position with which the state disagrees that it applies. So, so I think your, your answer to me and your answer to Judge Grant are, are similar. I just want to make sure I, I understand what your position is. So, I mean, so I ask you, like, could the state just say, you know, these are things that have been a problem under Title VII, we're banning these things. Your response seemed to indicate that the state couldn't do that because it, you needed to have sort of an individualized assessment in each case. Is that kind of what you're saying? That's right. You need to determine whether it is so pervasive, so severe, to amount to a change in the terms or conditions of employment. That's the context of it. You, the state is not banning specific words. We're looking at the words only to understand, have you reached the pr prohibited conduct, which is the act of discriminating in the terms or conditions of employment. Title VII says nothing about words. Right. Title VII, right? It's, the words may, in some instance, be evidence that you have actually. But so I mean, but you're saying Title VII is basically. I mean, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. But I mean, you're saying Title VII is sort of the least restrictive means that can be adopted, and there's nothing beyond that that a state could do, one way or the other, to address um, things that would be viewed as discriminatory. The state could do, but we know that it doesn't need to do this because Title VII already prohibits what it claims is its legitimate sweep. And I, I, I want to go back, Judge Grant, to one of your questions to uh, opposing counsel, which I think was very instructive, which is that if the state is correct here, then the state can turn any speech restriction into something that's immune from First Amendment scrutiny simply by labeling some act and saying you can't do this act, or we're gonna punish this act, but only if you couple that with the speech we don't like. And we know that that's not the law, because the Supreme Court, <coughs> Brown, and Frisbee versus Schultz, have described that kind of situation, which was anti-picketing law. Of course, picketing is the act of marching up and down, right? But in Kerry uh, versus Schultz, there was not just a categorical ban on residential picketing, there was an exception for labor picketing. And the court said you can't do that because that's not content neutral, you don't fall under time, place, or manner. In Frisbee, it was a categorical ban on picketing in residential uh, areas. So they said that is time, place, or manner because it is content neutral. Now here, what they're suggesting is you don't have to do content neutral. You can simply say you cannot walk up and down on a street, that's the conduct, if your message is about labor dispute, right? We know that that's not permissible because that's what Kerry versus Brown held. And yet- You make a law that said you can't make employees attend any mandatory trainings? Well, Your Honor, that would be, I suppose, a time, place, or manner in the sense that it would be content neutral, and I think we'd have to have other questions about whether 
in, this, in the notion of a meeting is itself communicative, right? I think, and we've made the argument, that these employee meetings are there for the purpose of communicating. That's why you have a meeting, right? And then, moreover, in the context of this case, to say that it's mandatory is itself communicative because in the scope of all the things that you might be doing on community on company time right now, we, the employer, are saying this is the most important thing for you to be doing on our time, to be here listening to this presentation, understanding these issues, understanding how some of your coworkers might be experiencing the world differently than you do. That is an important message. It's a message that is fundamental to our clients, but it's not a message with which this court needs to agree because the First Amendment, as Your Honor's question indicates, <coughs> the speech we want to make is, is favored or disfavored. That's the beauty of the First Amendment. Thank you, Your Honors. That's right. Agarwal. May it please the court, Shalini Goyal Agarwal on behalf of plaintiffs. I'm gonna be addressing vagueness and overbreath. There are four points I'd like to make, uh, three on vagueness and one on overbreath. First of all, in the First Amendment context, there is a heightened vagueness standard. If a restriction is viewpoint or content-based at this court, established and recognized in Walsh-Slager, um, it's subject to a more stringent vagueness test. Second, uh, this law fails the basic vagueness standard insofar as people of ordinary intelligence um, are unable to actually understand what they can and cannot say, and therefore it's susceptible to arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. And we think that's true. The easiest and simplest way to resolve the vagueness argument uh, is based on provision B of the statute, the purported safe harbor uh, that allows discussion in an objective manner without endorsement. But we also think that we make that argument with respect to each of the eight concepts as well. Uh, the third point I'd like to talk about is uh, defendants' cases involving dictionary definitions, uh, and those all involve many more concrete terms than the abstract concepts we have here, like... Can I ask you, can I ask you just a quick question before you get into that about the vagueness argument? Um, under this vagueness argument, do we have to look at each individual uh, you know, section of this for vagueness, uh, or is there some way for us to address a vagueness? I mean, I guess my point is, this statute prohibits a lot of speech. Um, do we have to look at each prohibition to determine whether that's vague or not? Uh, what do you think about that? No, I don't think we do, and we make that argument um, as the district court concluded below, if you just look at provision B, right, which says that any of the concepts above may not be construed to prohibit discussion. Right, right. So, I mean, you, you, your, your argument then that we don't have to look at the entire thing relies entirely on us concluding that B is void for vagueness. Right. That's, that's right. I mean, I think you could also conclude that about provision A as well in terms of the advance or a spouse, right? I think those are akin to the endorsement idea, so I, it straddles bo both provisions. Okay, thank you for that. How, how vague is B really? Because couldn't you, couldn't you say, you know, some people say that 
some individuals by virtue of their race, color, sex, or national origin are inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Doesn't, doesn't, wouldn't that kind of be a pretty straightforward way to understand teaching something objectively? Even just reading out the words of the concept directly. Well, I mean, so yes, at its, at its most basic nature. But I mean, I, I don't have a hard time, I don't think, understanding really what these eight topics are. And then the difference between kind of teaching that some people say this versus saying this is what I think and this is what you think. Um, why? How, how vague are these really to a person of common understanding who has been in Florida or the United States for the last five years. Your Honor, I think the idea of an objective, um, objective discussion of a controversial concept, to think about how a reasonable person would, like putting the reasonable person standard there, where this is how we have objective and, and other, other statutes that defendants have cited, it's kind of alien to the First Amendment analysis to say, okay, well, how would a reasonable person express this controversial concept? Uh, I think that that is the, the fundamental problem with why there is a vagueness issue uh, with that provision being. If you look at just the, the concept you're talking about, number two, um, related to unconscious bias, uh, you know, I think that maybe describing what unconscious bias is, uh, which is what our plaintiff Shavara Oren mentioned in her declaration, uh, to talk about, you know, that a person has biases based on the culture in which they are steeped. And, and I'll confess, you know, defendants graded us on our, on our, um, concept, our, the examples of the concepts that we gave and said, okay, well, these ones are permissible, these ones are not. And I was surprised by some of their the grades that we received, which I think reflects sort of some of the vagueness issues that, that, that are at play. Um, but with that um, description of being biased by virtue of the culture in which a person is raised or in which they're steeped, you know, I, defendants say that that's totally permissible. Uh, and that, I think it's really hard to parse it that finely. I and mean, you could imagine, you know, an immigrant family, how is, you know, being raised in that culture how is that distinguishable from national origin or from race? I think that, that those, the impossibility of sorting through um, how these concepts amount to, or when, when your discussion of them amounts to an endorsement uh, is, is really the problem. So, but you, you think the concepts are potentially clear and it's harder to sort out whether the company would be endorsing versus describing the concepts as the problem? No, 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 we think that they're, both provisions are, are, are not clear. So, you know, the, the without endorsement, I think is, <coughs> you can imagine the, the applications, like, you know, if you have a person, if, if it's something different than just, I read the concept and I say, yes, I endorse this. Um, imagine that you have the employer at the beginning of their presentation give a disclaimer saying, okay, nothing I'm about to talk about is something that I specifically endorse. Um, and then they discuss the concepts and they cast them. It seems like they're casting them in a favorable light. Maybe they smile when they are talking about people who are in support of the concepts and they maybe like frown when they're talking about criticisms of the concepts. Uh, and then at the end they say, but just by the way, let me restate my, my disclaimer. Would they actually be 
endorsing the concepts. It, it's impossible to know, and it, it think, depends in large part on whether a fact finder would ultimately agree or disagree with the concepts. Or what if the fact finder were to say also, you know, I don't think while you may have discussed them in an objective manner, in a sense, you didn't sufficiently talk about what's problematic about the concepts. And so on that basis, I've decided that actually, no, your presentation was not objective. The impossibility of figuring out that line, I think, is the, the easiest and simplest way to, to dispose of the case. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at another example that we give, to, to turn to the concepts themselves, um, if you look at an example from our brief uh, where Plaintiff Shabar Oren talks about um, the concept of uh, talking that there's sh white people should have a sense of humility. Uh, she's talking about there, you know, a history of racial violence. She gives a presentation to employees about that, and she says, you know, based on this history that shows uh, white violence or uh, discrimination against against black people in the modern day, you know, white people must have a sense of humility. Uh, and that has a moral valence uh, and, you know, arguably would violate concept one, um, arguably would violate concept three. Uh, you know, that is one of the challenges. Defendants say that, um, that there's also, you know, a, a privilege that attaches. That's, that's something that um, Ms. Oren speaks about in her presentations. Uh, defendants say that that her discussion of that is, is okay um, under concept four, uh, but under concept three, they say she can't talk about a privilege wheel, which also is about acknowledging privilege. Because of the inconsistency of application, each of the concepts is basically too hard for a reasonable employer to understand in advance what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not. All right, thank you, Ms. Agarwal. And Mr. Ohlendorf, you've reserved some time for rebuttal. I want to ask you, I just want to ask you, how, how would this, how does this statute operate? Um, if, uh, in other words, how would it be enforced? You would have to have an employee who attends mandatory training complain to the state and then the state would make a determination as to whether or not the statute is violated and then fine the employer $10,000. Is that how it works? Uh, I think so, Your Honor. Um, uh, I haven't reviewed the, the enforcement mechanism. Um, it, well, if that's the case, then it seems like what we're looking at is the speech itself and not the conduct of the employer. If that's how it works, I don't think so, Your Honor, because what would trigger the penalty again is is the act of making attendance mandatory. Uh, and uh, just a few additional points, Your Honors. Um, first, on the ten thousand dollar hypothetical, um, I think that would be uh, unconstitutional for all the reasons that I mentioned earlier. I think it would also clearly be unconstitutional for an additional reason, and that is a penalty on the First Amendment rights of the audience, right? Could, could, Florida, could Florida pass, just simply pass a law that prohibits mandatory diversity training? Yes, I think certainly it could. Uh, it could That's not what this does. This goes a little further than that. If, if you pass that law, then you could make a good argument that the statute just regulates conduct and not speech, right? 
I think you could. I think it would be the same argument as here, Your Honor. Of course, here you have a... Here you got to look at... You have to look at what's said, though. You have to look at what's said in order to... Let me ask the question before you answer it. You have to look at what is said at the diversity training before we're able to determine whether or not the statute is violated, right? That is correct, Your Honor. And I, again, return to the Supreme Court's emphatic statement that it's never been thought unconstitutional to examine the content of speech to determine whether restriction on conduct applies. So, again, Judge Grant, I think the $10,000 hypothetical would clearly be a violation of the First Amendment rights of the audience members to have to pay a $10,000 penalty to hear speech. On Title VII... The First Amendment generally applies to speakers, too, right? I mean, isn't this a penalty on the speaker? I don't think it is for all the reasons that we've discussed. I'm just saying that that hypothetical would clearly be a penalty. What if a company were allowed to give a training on a prohibited topic, but only if it paid $10,000 into the state anti-woke fund? The company has charged $10,000 for... I think that would be much closer, Your Honor, to the Sorrell case, where it's a restriction on conduct in a sense, but it is imposing a clear burden on the speech itself. Why is not allowing the speech to happen in a mandatory way less of a burden than paying money? Because, Your Honor, the Supreme Court, again, has said in the captive audience cases that not being able to force your speech on someone else is not a burden. They could force the speech on the employees in my second example. They just have to pay. In both instances, you're forcing people to listen to the speech. That's precisely why I think that example is different from the law that we have here. Could Florida outlaw trainings that employees find tiresome or a waste of time? Maybe a lot of... Well, I won't specify what types of trainings, but could Florida say trainings that employees just don't really want to do, you can't do that? I don't see any First Amendment problem. Wouldn't there be a vagueness problem there? Possibly, possibly, but I don't think it's a First Amendment problem, so it doesn't go to the speech versus conduct divide, I think. Why wouldn't it be? You have the government control the message that an employer delivers to their employee. It doesn't control the message, Judge Wilson. The state is free to, as under this law, the state is free to proclaim at its trainings whatever message it wants. It just can't mandate attendance. It just can't mandate attendance. Let's assume that this is a regulation of speech. Could you just give your best argument? I mean, this is the same path I went down with the other side, but just your best argument that this meets strict scrutiny, that this is narrowly tailored to accomplish a state objective. So we think it furthers the same interest as Title VII hostile environment claims further, which is 
keeping uh, uh, racist and sexist and discriminatory speech out of the workplace. I think uh, uh, my friend's answer to the Title VII uh, comparison uh, uh, is completely unpersuasive. I think, you know, his, his first answer is to say, well, Title VII actually doesn't regulate speech at all, it just regulates conduct. But that's not so. There, there are plenty of cases where it's speech itself, pure speech, constitutionally protected speech, that is uh, what, what creates the hostile environment claim. The, the statute, the language of the statute, I suppose, refers to conduct, but the EEOC regulation governing hostile environment claims refers to speech. So I don't think you can get out of it that way. Uh, he says, well, there the speech has to be severe and per pervasive, right? And that's true because as a statutory matter, it's only severe and pervasive speech that alters the conditions of employment. But I, I, I've never heard anyone suggest that that is some sort of First Amendment limit, that, that uh, severe and pervasive speech is the outer bounds of a state's ability to regulate racist and sexist speech in the workplace. And that would make no sense. Why would the severity of the, of the speech uh, uh, make a First Amendment difference? I mean, uh, one well, because it because that's what changes the terms of the employment. Whereas you can say whatever horrifying things you want on a street corner, but what's different about the employment context is that saying things that create a severe, severe and pervasive, you know, bad atmosphere really change the terms of that person's employment in a different way. That's right, but the reason that matters is because that is the scope of uh, of Title Seven, not because that is the the scope of the First Amendment. Uh, right. One can hardly think of more severe speech than the the the, uh, the speech in uh, Snyder versus Phelps, right? The the funeral protest case. Uh, but of course, uh, the fact that that speech is not just offensive but severely offensive uh, does not make it uh, it's, outside it, the First Amendment. It seems like his argument on that, uh, friend on the other side's argument, is that that that's that it's narrowly tailored. Title Seven is because it requires kind of a case by case adjudication about whether the speech. Uh, altered someone's conditions of employment, and that this law is not narrowly tailored because it doesn't require that kind of case-by-case -case adjudication. Could you address that? Yeah, I don't see why uh, the case-by-case -case nature of the adjudication goes to narrow tailoring. Again, it goes to uh, whether the, the speech meets the statutory requirements of Title VII. And, and here, Your Honors, the, the, the interest that the state is driving at just is requiring attendance at uh, workplace trainings where these ideas are inculcated. So I, I can't think of any uh, 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 more tailored approach to uh, addressing that interest than, uh, than what the well, I mean, here's, here's just a hypothetical. I mean, they, perhaps Florida could have passed a law that gave an employee um, the right to sue uh, if they suffered, I don't know, you know, um, uh, mental distress, mental or emotional distress in light of being required to attend a uh, presentation like this. What, what about that as a more narrowly tailored option? So I don't think so, Judge Brasher, and I, I think this idea of, uh, of whether the speech has caused some kind of mental distress is kind of a fiction created by, by the plaintiffs. Uh, there's no, no indication that that is what um, that is what the state was aiming at here. Uh, the state, I think, has an interest in uh, in protecting people from from racist and offensive speech, even if they uh, even if they uh, would welcome misguidedly welcome it. Uh, now, really, you know, really, that's interesting. So the state has an interest in protecting me from hearing things that I want to hear. Uh, I think so. You're, I don't. I don't see why. Um, why whether the employee welcomes hearing that they are more in a, a morally inferior race goes to oh. the state's interest. The state have an interest in protecting people in Skokie from hearing Nazi speech 
I mean, some of the attendees probably enjoyed that parade. Why didn't this? Why didn't the state have an interest in making sure that they didn't hear that very harmful and wrong speech? Uh, well, Your Honor, I think um, I think whether the state had an interest in that. Uh, clearly, uh, uh, the restriction was not was not tailored to advance it. And, and, I, and here, Your Honor, I would um, I would point as well to the fact that um, uh, keeping keeping racist work si uh, uh, speech out of the workplace, I think, clearly is a compelling interest. Um, uh, uh, and uh, that is united here with the state's interest in protecting uh, protecting uh, its, its workers um, from being uh, conscripted into listening uh, to this speech. So it is only the union of those two interests um, that the state is, is uh, the act here is furthering. All right. I think we have the argument. Council, thank you. And the court will be in recess for 15 minutes. All right. <laughs>